on air. This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Welcome to Safety Wars Live for Thursday, October 13, 2022. Welcome to the show. We're broadcasting from Clarkstown, New York, and the border of Liberty and Prosperity and the highway to the north. I hope everybody had a good Thursday. This year is just flying by. In case you don't know, my name is Jim Polzel, your dedicated host of these airwaves. What is Safety Wars Live? Safety Wars Live is a weeknight program, Monday through Friday, we're on the air. Uh, and what, what do we do? We talk about safety in the news and environmental issues in the news and everything that has to do with the in between and then we follow up with the markets at the end of the day. We try to get ahead of everybody else. And we also discuss one safety topic. Unfortunately, last night, our topic on permit required confined spaces was very prescient because there was some stuff coming out of OSHA on permit required confined spaces on one specific one where someone passed away and that confined space is one of the big ones for discussion. So we're going to go delving back into uh, confined spaces because there's a lot of debate as to what's a confined space or not in some weird things. And this is actually, going to, I'm going to be following this situation when we talk about it because this is going to be one of those things that may change uh, the industry a little bit and what we're calling a permit required confined space. So, we are on broadcasting live on safetyfm.com, Monday through Friday, 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just to give you a little bit of a programming alert, on Monday, I will likely not uh, be broadcasting. On Monday night, we have uh, uh, a meeting that I normally go to on Monday, third Monday of every month. Uh, some of it is safety-related, some of it is not. So, uh we might be reporting back from the meeting at one point uh, on Tuesday. Now we're going to go off to the news. Wildlife populations plunged 69% since 1970, according to the World Wildlife Fund, WWF. Wildlife populations of monitored animal species, this doesn't mean that there are unmonitored ones, that have, pl have plummeted nearly 70% in the last 50 years, according to the World Wildlife uh, Foundation. They uh, basically went through 32,000 populations of more than 5,000 species of animal, mammals, birds, amphibians, reptiles, and fish, and noticed that everything is going down. And areas like Latin American Caribbean, which are heavy duty into biodiversity, because those are some of the last areas touched in the world. The figure for animal population loss is as high as 94%. Basically, what does it mean for us? 
So in the environmental uh, industry or movement, whatever we're going to call it, there is a philosophy here with uh, biodiversity and biodiversity means health or an ecosystem. There are more, uh, uh, no, resources, mean things being more diver diverse means it's not only aesthetically pleasing or anything like that, but there are, that means that you have a lot of resources. It's similar to mineral resources where you use up all the mineral resources of one type, there are you, of one type, there are usually some type, there's some repercussions. Same thing with biodiversity, where there are untold, a lot of our medications come originally from plants and some from animals, weird things like that. So it's a big thing. So even let's say the horseshoe crab, right? let's take it. And I know one of our listeners is a researcher and horseshoe crabs, and it's one of her passions. Horseshoe crab uh, blood is used for medical testing. Yes, horseshoe crabs, yes. And when we the population of horseshoe crabs goes down, we're not gonna be able to do certain types of medical testing. So biodiversity is pretty important here. Follow-up on a story from yesterday. There, as we recall, there was a, a Druzba oil pipeline uh, that was leaking in Poland, and there were allegations of by certain politicians that this was sabotage in relation to the Ukrainian war. Turns out that they've done a little bit more investigation, like I said, no, uh, like I said yesterday, stuff has to be investigated before we start going off half cocked here. And, uh, no, basically half cocked to making all different allegations, especially when we have people threatening nuclear war. And it turns out that according to, uh, reports, published reports, that it seems to be lack of maintenance of some sort or something else that's not related to third party sabotage. Well, they should probably continue to, uh, investigate this and stop yelling and screaming that it's sabotage when it may not be sabotage. Things leak all the time. Doesn't mean that they're sabotage. That's why you got to do investigations. Story coming out of Ireland here, a uh, journal, and I'm having problems figuring out what journal this is, but the, the uh, study primary author is Susan Byrne and several other authors. Uh, and something called the Coral Study Group. So the, uh, it comes down to this. Mass lockdowns, right? And the cohort of babies born during those uh, lockdowns related to COVID uh, missed the opportunity of meeting a normal social circle of people outside the family home. And this has led, the social isolation has impacted social communication skills and babies born during the pandemic uh, compared with previous cohorts pretty important here what they're hoping is is that no uh babies are very resilient and they're going to be able to go and adapt adapt to this over uh their lifetimes i don't know uh take it from someone who was very socially isolated in those years with my uh uh birth defect cleft palate 
It's a little bit hard to catch up on a lot of these social things. Even today, I miss on social cues and things of that nature. Thank God I have a very understanding wife, <laughs> for that matter. So, a Slovakian company working uh, that's working on developing a flying car uh, took a big step forward this past week uh, because their prototype successfully completed an inner-city test flight. It's been known as the air car, which basically what the idea is is that this car would be marketed and you would not, you know, as I've been following this since I was a child, one of the things is, is that well, uh, rather, it would be uh, almost like the Jetsons. By the way, George Jetson was born this year, by the way, according to the cartoon, at least. And where you would actually be able to take a car and fly it from location to location. You would be very little need for highways, roadways, anything like that. This. Uh, one of the companies that's doing this, not this company here, uh... But they're, one of the companies doing it would be uh, has the idea of using it over water. So you would be like a old-fashioned uh, airboat, where you'd be able to take off on the water, then land wherever you need to land, dock, and get off. And basically, that's uh, what the idea is, is that you would take off somewhere from an airfield, and it would end up landing and another airfield, you fold up the wings and you drive to wherever you need to go. It's a novel concept. What I'm, what basically they're saying with this air car is no longer just a proof of concept. It's actually coming into some type of reality. My question is this, we have a big move here, whether you agree with it or not, uh, with a push towards electric vehicles. So, I don't know if this is how this is going to work because aircraft use run on gasoline. They're trying to develop electric aircraft that are commercially viable. I don't know how that's going to impact things. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know how, where this is going. They've been trying this for way over 50, 60 years here. One day, will it be a reality? I don't know. I guess you're going to need somebody like an Elon Musk to take this whole thing there uh take the bull by the horns and get it good moving astronomers studying the after effects of nasa's recent tests of a planetary defense system have determined that the mission was a smashing success as it managed to significantly off alter the movement of an asteroid so nasa a couple weeks ago right they uh, uh and this thing's been in development for years they smashed an asteroid. And the asteroid's name is Dimorphos, right? Hoping that impacting this is going to, and this asteroid is relatively small, about 560 feet, or to be disrupted in the orbit. My question is this. Did they disrupt the orbit? And now we're going to have a problem with this thing running into us. <laughs> I don't know. Along with all the other problems. That's a good question with this, but they consider it a success. Wall Street Journal uh, today, let's get the numbers here. So Dow Jones Industrial is up 
today. Close up 30,000, 38. It's up back up above 30,000. That's the P500, 36,69.91. NASDAQ is up 10,049.15. Russell, 2000, 17,28.41. The 10 year treasury is trading at uh, uh, 3.968. That's down. Bitcoin is down at 19,361. Crude oil came slightly down to 88.97. Moving on to the precious metal markets. Gold is at 16.73. It's down slightly. Silver down slightly, 19.11. Platinum is up, 19.18. And palladium is down, 2.14950. I don't know. Here's my question here. Long-term investment, I'm always told, and again, I'm not an investment uh, provider, that uh, investment guy here. I'm not, at, you know, I'm just asking a question. I'm not making a recommendation. I was always told don't invest in platinum because eventually the price is going to fall, and those predictions turned out to be correct back in from the early 2000s. My question is this. We're getting uh, reports every day on on catalytic converter thefts from cars. So catalytic converters are in large part platinum. I'll have to have platinum balls on them. People are stealing them from like parked cars. So it's like you go up in the morning, get up in the morning, go out to your car to start it up to go to work. And guess what? There's no freaking exhaust system. I don't imagine wake up all the neighbors and everything. Is that impacting the price of platinum? Because now, why didn't we see this many years ago when platinum was up around eighteen or nineteen hundred dollars? We didn't hear. No, we. No, every once in a while, you'd hear about that. But why is this now? Stealing thing. Are people that desperate for money, or you know, some people just figured this out? I don't know. That's always been a question. We're going to take a break, and we will be back uh, after the break. the professional safety community communication and planning are just a few keys to your program success the question many practitioners have is where do i start dr jay allen the creator of the safety fm platform and host of the rated r safety show has built a global foundation to help you along the way. Go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals, including Blaine Hoffman with the Safety Pro, <laughs> Sam Goodman with the Hop Nerd, Sheldon Primus with the Safety Consultant, Jim Pozell with Safety Wars, Emily Elrod with Unapologetically Bold, and many others. As individuals, we can do great things, but as a team, we become amazing. Dial into safetyfm.com today and surround yourself with a powerful force of knowledge and support. Safety Wars is streaming now. SafetyFM.com. And we are back. We're going to start now with our OSHA stuff right off of... Where am I I getting this information on OSHA? So usually once or twice a week, I go into the OSHA news release region and they 
tonight we're going to be reading from uh, Region 4 News. And I'm going to be commenting on some of the stuff here on uh, what, what the news releases are, what's out there in the whole safety in the news. So this is from Chicago, right, Region 5. Chicago Power Construction receives star-level designation for exemplary workplace safety and health programs. Employing interactive online reporting tools, virtual job planning sites, and new employee orientations with a commitment to safety are some of the hallmarks of the Power Construction Company. Hold on here, hold on. Power Construction Company's innovative health and safety approach. All right, that's good. Uh, In recognitions of... Its efforts, OSHA has designated Chicago-based company Star Mobile Workforce Voluntary Protection Program the highest safety achievement earned in OSHA's Voluntary Protection Program. Let's go out there, and I'm sorry about the wrong button, but let's give them a round of applause. So that's good. We always like to hear uh, people making VPP status here, and... It's a good thing. Uh, it's for whatever reason that's not as popular as it often was uh, in the past. Uh, a lot of companies, again, with the way the political climate is in the United States nowadays, don't want the government in any of their business. Now, I don't know. This is usually a really good program. I don't know, understand really that thinking, but this is a uh, good thing to promote this uh, with us, especially with everything else that's going on as far as safety is concerned and a lot of the violations I see out there doing the safety audits and doing what I do. It's nice to see somebody is actually pursuing safety in a voluntary way. We're not going to go uh, and have to badger people. The VPP promotes effective work or work site-based safety and health. Program commits management, employees, and OSHA representatives to enact a comprehensive safety and health management system. VVP designation is OSHA's official recognition of outstanding efforts by employers and employees to ensure occupational safety and health. Next story. U.S. Department of Labor, and I'm not going to mention the name of the company here, uh, cites Florida Company for numerous safety failures after investigation on how a 22-year-old diver working in a canal drowned. This actually, I don't know how common it is, but I could see, especially in the diving industry, I do have some uh, experience, not with diving or as a dive supervisor, but working on projects with a diving element on there. I could see where some of this stuff could happen, right, Uh, with everything. So... Working at the bottom of a canal on April 4th, uh, 2022, and again, uh, this is six months after the fact, right? a young diver was removing sand with an industrial vacuum to restore an embankment project when sediment above him collapsed onto him, leaving the 22-year-old worker trapped until he drowned. Horrible. So this is more or less like an underwater excavation uh, is what I'm looking at here. Uh, right, and it's with hypersaturated soil. So uh, obviously, this would be problem. No, obvious now to us, this would be prone to some type of excavation collapse. 
That's how I would uh, treat this. So what were some of the violations? They sound like they're all uh, general duty uh, violations of some sort, and they're, uh, they're, there's a proposed two willful and ten serious violations because now, from what I understand, with the dive and I've read the uh, regulation, there's really not a lot in here for divers. Uh, I'm going to go right now, if you'll forgive me. I'm, let me go to OSHA.gov and standards. All right, laws and regulations, uh, and this would probably be I, construction. I would define it as. And we have, or let's do edit find. And it will be diving. So we're looking at subpart Y here in 1926 subpart Y. And what do we have? 1926-1071, nothing, no help. Definitions, nothing in here. They say go to the 1910.402. So they're identical, 1910.402 and this one. Qualifications, go to 1910.402. Four four twenty, I mean. So we're going to go on over to nineteen ten four twenty, and you're looking. What I'm seeing here is that you have to have procedures uh, in here. Pardon me. I know dead air time. So 1910 subpart T. And okay, they're more extensive than I thought, but they're very basic procedures for diving with the OSHA stuff. All right, failing to train divers in dive-related physics and physiology, not training dive teams on equipment reuse. Not ensuring that all dive team members are CPR trained. That's a big one. That is actually a very common one, especially in the construction arena, where they do not train people on first aid CPR. So OSHA has a requirement for first aid and CPR training and a response within three to four minutes, a, a medical response when it's appropriate. And this fulfills that first aid CPR training, which, by the way, we do here. That's actually one of our more, most commonly requested uh, classes for 2022. So failing to require an, pardon me, an experienced dive team member, supervised dredging operators in a canal with zero visibility, failing to have an emergency aid list at the jobs at the work site, performing underwater dredging in a canal without a standby diver, not providing employees with a harness capable of distributing pull forces over divers' bodies. All of this is pretty... All this is very uh, common. I mean, I've seen this on the dive jobs that I've been on, what I've heard about, where they're actually having to go and you have to badger the companies and everything. My question is this. Who are the people? Okay, the company did this, but who are the oversight people? It's not like you're going to just go out and say, let's go out and dredge some stuff here. And is the oversight company doing this uh, is that company uh, doing their job is the government agency that's paying for this 
doing their job of oversight? Do they know what they're looking at? That's always my question on that. Yeah, the company did all this, but somewhere in the system there was a failure, and we're all about systems here, was a failure that allowed all this stuff going on here. My question is, who was that? And with that, what agency, what company, what GC, who, who was in there? Now, I'm going to say this. Everyone thing, everyone's innocent until proven guilty, number one. Number two, all this stuff could get negotiated down. Right now, it's $46,409 in penalties. And that seems pretty low here. Often what happens is, uh, in these situations, OSHA often, not all the time, but in my experience, they'll give a de minimis fine here for this. Because what's going to happen here is this is probably going to be negotiated down or it's going to be fought in court. And they wanted a de minimis fine here so they could get an admission of guilt and get this with a lawsuit of some sort. It's often with this. So uh, that may be what's going on here. I'm not sure. But it seems pretty low to me, $46,409 in penalties. My opinion here, my professional opinion, and opinions are like noses. Everyone has one, and they all smell. Except for one family member of mine, he has no sense of smell, and you know who you are. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's like this. You have to do the assessment and make sure the job is set up properly. It's very frustrating to me for you reading this. Uh, I will be sending this out to a client in due course. Now, back to what uh, I tell you. Let's uh, take a little break here because we're gonna. This is gonna be a longer discussion that we're gonna have. Is your safety training old, stale, and hackneyed? Is your safety trainer still preaching a warped version of behavior-based safety? How about safety training that actually addresses your hazards in your workplaces and is not standardized baloney from 25 years ago? Contact the Safety Wars team at safetywars.com or call Jim Polzel at 845-269-5772. Remember, if you're receiving this message, you are the solution to unsafe workplaces. So just to uh, back that up, we've gotten a lot of uh, interest in our company, and because of this podcast, I want to uh, or live broadcast now, which is uploaded to uh, the Safety Wars uh, podcasting platform, which is available. I'm told in 32 countries, uh, plus Poland. Poland's a country. I get it, but. Uh, primarily across the UK and North America. And we're you know, thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. If you're interested in working with us, please give us a call, 845-269-5772, or contact me at jim at safetywords.com. We'll set up a, an appointment, a consultation with you uh, remotely, and then we'll figure out if you, know, you have a need for what we do. We do everything here. We do safety training, we're OSHA outreach trainers uh, in all four disciplines, general industry, construction, maritime, and disaster response worker. We also, uh, today I was uh, doing a fall protection competent person training class. Uh, we were heavy duty into that, so that's one of our major uh, requests, and also first aid CPR uh, type stuff. We do a lot of that here. Like I said, it's our most common thing. Here, anything that you need to do, we'll probably do the training on. And I'm not begging here. I'm just saying, no, this is what we do. 
So this is out of uh, Savannah, Georgia. Again, this is right from the OSHA website, and it is related to what we were talking about last night with the uh, with a permit required confined spaces. So there's always a question, and I uh, back in the day we always used to get this question. I don't get it too often anymore. Is a crawl space a permit required confined space? And I always give the consultant answer. What's the consultant answer? What do you, what do you, what do you think that is? The, the consultant answer is maybe, maybe not. We have to go. We have to look and see what exactly we are dealing with here before we're going to make a determination whether something is a permit required confined space or not. Another area that people ask, oh, no, is this a permit required confined space? And that is the uh, attics. Are attics permit required confined spaces? And I always give the consultant answer. Maybe, maybe not. It all depends on what you're doing. So uh, this case here, this is probably going to be one that's going to be uh, one to follow here because this is actually what the, uh, this is actually what the, uh, I'm doing two things at one time here. The, that might settle some of this debate here. So a federal workplace safety investigation and in how an employee suffered a fatal electrocution while digging a shallow drainage trench under a home has found that a Savannah crawl space remediation company might have prevented the incident by following required safety standards. Well, yeah, that's what they say on all this stuff, all right? OSHA determined that a 32-year-old lead repair technician employed by a company, came into contact with an electrical line in April as they installed a drain to remove accumulating water. OSHA cited the company, and again, it's they're innocent until proven guilty, and things got negotiated down and, you know, settled. So this is the initial, this may not mean anything. Uh, may for not making sure to de-energize electrical lines before allowing employees to work and dig within the danger zone, which exposed workers to electrical shock hazards. The company also failed to train employees to recognize and avoid unsafe conditions, did not provide personal protective equipment for working in a confined space, and failed to identify all permit-required confined spaces. And OSHA has proposed 31000 in change in penalties. Okay, so... What's the... Uh, Right, so I, you could do a little bit of a deep dive here into this, meaning you in today's age, uh, in, the, in today's time, is you click twice and you come up with uh, the actual citation notice. So what are we looking here? Uh, we have uh, the, the employer. This is uh, they're considering this construction. So we talked about the permit construction confined spaces last night. So how do you know you're in the construction uh, area? The 1926 regulations is that you have to go and look at what the definition of construction is. And the definition of construction is 
Uh, hold on, I'll let me get this out right here. Sorry, I don't have this up front, but this is like stream of consciousness often. So, construction is defined as construction, demolition, right, painting, uh, and decorating as essentially what of uh, construction is defined as. In this case, they're excavating. Excavating almost always is construction. Plus, they're installing something in there. They're not maintaining it, so this is construction. So the employee, this is 1926.21, the employee at B2, the employer did not instruct each employee in the recognition or an avoidance of unsafe conditions and the regulations applicable to his work. Meaning that these guys likely, according to OSHA at least, did not train the employees on anything. Electrical shock hazards or anything like that. Didn't do it, according to OSHA. So that was a uh, uh, serious violation. Citation number two is also serious. Employees are not protected by protective helmets. Okay, so hard hats of some sort, right? And, and danger from a head injury, uh, from impact falling or flying objects, or from electrical shocks and burns. In this case, the uh, person was electrocuted, so it might have to do no hard hat, no electrical hard hat, or no hard hat. What's something else you could do here? You could also de-energize. You de-energize, there's no chance of electrical shock and lockout tag out on that. Also, uh, depending on how the configuration is, could you remove some of these head hazards? Remember, the hierarchy of controls. This could have probably prevented this situation from happening. That was serious. Number three, and also serious. Working in proximity to electric power circuits were not protected from electric shock by de-energizing or ungrounding of the circuit. This is what we found, what I just mentioned. Number four, an another serious one. Employer did not, and this is 1926-1203, this is permit required confined spaces for construction. Before it began work at a work site, the employer did not ensure that a competent person identified all the confined spaces. Now, uh, as part of the fall protection training today, it, that I did, it was for competent person fall protection training. And we went over what the responsibilities of a competent person are. And in the regulations, 1926-32, all... Uh, job sites and construction have to be inspected regularly by a competent person. And what's a competent person? Someone who's able to assess the hazards and also correct the hazards. And that's all we've had that discussion on this program numerous times on what exactly that is, where you have to, uh, you have to have both. So you have to be able to assess the hazard. How do we do it? Either by, uh, uh, Education, experience, training, anything like that, where you're able to assess the things. Preferably all three, but not necessarily all three. You could have just very knowledgeable people who are able to assess this that never saw the inside of a classroom. That is possible. I met people like that. And there, a lot of times those are the people you want working for you. People who know, depending on what the situation is. Uh, and then you have to have the authority to correct things. So... Under the permit required confined space entry standard 1203, uh, 29 CFR uh, 1926 1203, 
you have to have a competent person assess what the hazards are. This company allegedly did not do that. That's serious. Another violation, another serious one, right? The workplace contained one or more permit spaces. Now let's talk, review real quick here. What? So you can have a confined space. A confined space is easy to uh, 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 define, right? Large enough and configure an employee can bodily enter and perform an assigned job, an assigned task. Has limited or restricted means of for entry and exit. And it's not designed for continuous human occupancy. That's a confined space. What is a confined space? And what happens? You got just got to work safely and assess your hazards and everything else with a confined space. Now, let's say that you have what's a permit required confined space. A permit required confined space has something else going on here a hazardous atmosphere, engulfing materials, converging walls, or some type of other safety hazard that is associated with a, con- a permit required confined space. In this case, this would be other, meaning electrical. Okay, that's important. That's what it turned out to be. But you don't want to use your employee as an indicator of an unsafe condition, right? uh, getting killed here. Another one, item number five, the employer did not provide training under the permit required confined space. Wow, we, by the way, we supply that, right? So the then the employer did not ensure that the employee possessed the understanding, knowledge, and skills necessary for the safe performance of duties assigned under this standard. Right? So these were one, two, three, four, five, six serious issues going on here with this. And according to the paperwork, Let me make sure we have nothing on there. So, again, permit required confined spaces, something that you really need to watch out for, and something that, no, so where do we get this, uh, where do we get this stuff from? Well, no, where, what, what's my point? Part of this is uh, for the worker. You're the supervisor. Who listens to this program? Primarily supervisors primarily safety professionals, people in management, and everything else, all right, with this. Now, let's talk about this here. What I'm hoping is that, okay, you're in the safety industry, you're a manager, you're a supervisor, what have you. You recognize that, hey, this is something that we may need, especially now with a crawl space, which not your traditional confined space. It's not a tank. It's not a sewer. It's not this, not a cesspool. Nothing like this is an actual crawl space. And OSHA considered this a permit required confined space. So if that question comes up in your workplace, is a crawl space a permit required confined space? Yeah, according to these people it is. And according to this incident, it was recognized as one. Wow. Well, that's probably really a, uh, uh, a, a big thing here. Let's say that your spouse or family member or friend is involved in this type of work. Hmm. Okay. They're going into crawl spaces. Maybe you want to go back and you want to say to your loved one, your friend, whoever it is, maybe 
you know, hey, this might have, might is this what you deal with? It's worth a conversation with that and ask questions. Uh, we have this situation happen uh, all the time uh, with, fam- with my family members when I was doing field work in the environmental field, high-profile uh, situations. Well, hey, we saw on the news X, Y, and Z. Are you, no, are you obeying the laws? Are you obeying the rules? Getting phone calls from uh, extended family members. That's something that you really need to do. think that's one of the reasons why we're here. We're fighting that safety war. We're all in together fighting that safety war. We're going to go to a break right now. Uh, do, do, do. That's... You are listening to Safety Wars. Tomorrow's safety today. In the professional safety community, communication and planning are just a few keys to your program's success. The question many practitioners have is, where do I start? Dr. Jay Allen, the creator of the Safety FM platform and host of the Rated R Safety Show, has built a global foundation to help you along the way. Go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals, including Blaine Hoffman with The Safety Pro, Sam Goodman with The Hop Nerd, Sheldon Primus with The Safety Consultant, Jim Pozell with Safety Wars, Emily Elrod with Unapologetically Bold, and many others. As individuals, we can do great things, but as a team, we become amazing. Dial into safetyfm.com today and surround yourself with a powerful force of knowledge and support. Okay, we are back with Safety Wars live. And we're talking about permit required confined spaces. Something you really know in hindsight, something you really need to consider. What often happens with these things is that people say, hey, I'm only going to go to that space for a minute. I don't have to worry about it. Well, that's usually when people have issues out there with this. So, what are we going to talk about? Let's talk about dangerous atmospheres in a confined space. So, you're a confident person. You're doing whatever you're doing. Whatever kind of work. You identify it as a permit-required confined space. And you say, hey, uh, it's permit-required confined space. It's not in the maritime field. It's not a ship. It's something else. What are some of the common atmospheric hazards that you're going to see in a permit-required confined space? And there are all, usually, right on the regulation, there's a couple of them right off the bat and from just prior experience that are standard. Number one, the number one thing you have to worry about is oxygen deficiency. Now, what's the issue with oxygen deficiency? If you have an oxygen-deficient atmosphere, right, oxygen is the elixir of life. And without oxygen, you cannot breathe and you can uh, not 
do anything, and eventually it will lead to your death. So, normal oxygen is 20.9%, right? Uh, that's what it is, or 209,000 parts per million. OSHA, hold on, right? So OSHA essentially, uh, anything less than 19.5% is considered low oxygen. And it's a percentage. So you can even go from different altitudes, and the percentages generally are the same because you say, well, what, what difference does that make? Higher oxygen, no, higher altitude, oxygen, less air. Air is thinner, less dense. But it's still, the percentages are still there. And once you start to get to 10 to 19%, and it's an increasing part of this, right? 10 to 19 and a half percent or 100,000 to 195,000, right? Now you have an increased breathing rate accelerated heartbeat, impaired thinking, and coordination. If it starts to get down that low, other things, you have blue lips, you have tinnitus, ringing of the ears. This is why it's important for that per, uh, confined space sensory attendant to monitor the space and monitor exactly what's going on between 10 and 19% so you can observe what people are doing. So once you start to get, so this is what happens. You go out there with the air monitoring equipment and... Hey, 20.9%, you're great. Once you start to get below 19.5%, and what could cause that? Right? Let's say you're in this space and it starts going low. Just you exhaling or the job activities, or maybe you're doing some type of activity in there, could displace the oxygen. Could happen. More commonly, before you even go into that space, you're supposed to air monitor the space, and you're going to do oxygen, a lower explosive limit, Typically, hydrogen sulfide and carbon monoxide. Those are the four. So, with all this stuff here, with the uh, uh, once you start to get under nineteen and a half percent, and you get some companies out there nineteen percent. Ah, you're good. It's 19, you know, they wiggle room on here and everything else. You have increasing illnesses, and that's what you hear. And it's illegal and it's wrong. Once you start to get into ten or eleven percent, chances are one breath, and you're gonna probably pass out automatically. That's uh, what it comes down to. Once you get to 6 to 10%, nausea, vomiting, lethargy, leading to unconsciousness. That unconsciousness, in my experience, happens, boom, at an instant. And less than 6% convulsions and a cessation of breathing, cardiac arrest, less than 6%. Could be all different types of reasons why you could have low oxygen in there. But what the point is, it's got to be monitored. And back in the day when we did not have combined monitors, so now you have a three gas, when we were when we got three gas monitors, holy crap, were we happy. Well, now we don't have to carry around three meters. But basically, without oxygen, that meter does not work because a lot of these meters work on combustibility. So without oxygen, guess what? Meters do not work. And you're going to say, well, that means no LEL, no CO, no, uh, my understanding, no CO. If I'm wrong, please correct me. No H2S. Everything's not going to be reading right. So oxygen is the most important. The uh, next one 
uh, is, uh, well, let's go back to oxygen. Let's say that you have too much oxygen. So I was reading an article last week that in the past, we're talking eons ago with like the dinosaurs, you have millions of years ago, the oxygen concentration of the earth was actually much higher. It was, they think, up to about 28%. That also presents a hazard. So for a long time, ozone generators used to be very popular in homes. Uh, there were a couple of companies out there selling them. And where you put actual ozone, meaning O3, not O2, like in the air, into the atmosphere, and it would be used as a deodorizer and everything else. But the company always said, don't really put this on if you're going to be in the room, right? That was one of the things. Okay, neither here nor there. We're not going to debate this. And what happens is uh, you would get a shortness of breath, chest pain, and everything else just from that, right? Either from the exposure to ozone and you have a higher oxygen content. And a similar thing happens with in this case, with an oxygen-enriched atmosphere. At 28.5%, I'm told that the human body cannot survive that. And so back here with the dinosaurs and things like that, all those millions of years ago and everything, uh, hundreds of millions of years ago, chances are we would not be living that long if we were able to transport into time and go back there. The oxygen levels are too high. The other thing is this. the uh, It cause, promotes a second condition that we have, which is fire. So you, we remember the four parts of the, it used to be fire triangle, and then it became the tetrahedron, where the fire triangle, you have uh, oxygen, you have, or an oxidizer to be more, not necessarily, in the air, oxygen, but not necessarily, some type of oxidizer, a fuel, and some type of energy meaning some type of an ignition source in there. It could be if you're dealing with a shock-sensitive item and you it's shock-sensitive and you drop it and it hits the floor, what do you think happens? Now that's enough energy where you can set off the uh, an explosion with that or set off a reaction. Uh, as they got on with things, and it's a very interesting history I'm not going to go into, but... As it progressed and fire science progressed, they came out with what's called the fire tetrahedron, where you have a fourth part of the this model here, so tetrahedron, pyramid of sorts, think of it, and that is a chemical reaction where free radicals are able to react, and as this becomes a self-sustained reaction, a self-igniting thing, and it's you have a fire. All right, so you add more oxygen or more of an oxidizer into the system, now you're going to be more likely to have a fire. And the second thing you're going to monitor for by law versus oxygen is lower explosive limit or lower flammability range. So, for example, you have the LEL of uh, carbon monoxide, or it can be, let's LEL of gasoline, let's say. All right, so we got our book out here. Okay, the LEL of uh, uh, flammable gases and vapors. So for gasoline, uh, let's see here. I have the book out. Uh, gasoline, the concentration is 1.2. So uh, an LEL is 1.2. That's a lower explosive limit. 
So that means having a list of parts per million on there, that is 12,000, roughly. Don't quote me on this. Different sources have different. So once you get above 12,000 parts per million for oxygen, 1.2% concentration, now you're in the flammable range. If you keep on adding more and more gasoline vapor here into the system, then, and you reach 7.1 or 70%, which is 71,000 parts per million, right? So from 1.2 to, uh, from 12,000 to 71,000, that is called the flammable range. Once you get above that 71,000, in our example here, you can have a fire because now, you're running what's called, what we used to call with carburetors, we're running too rich. There's not enough oxygen in the air. It displaces the oxygen in the air. It's not enough oxygen. There's too much fuel. Therefore, you cannot have a fire. So 1.2 to 7.1. Now, what the what the common practice is and the regular is with LELs is once you get above 10% of this flammable range then, uh, which will be 1,200 parts per million for gasoline, then you have to stop work. That's a prohibited condition. Why do they, they put in a, a uh, 1 to 10 safety margin on here? Why? Because the next thing I'm going to tell you, most of the time, this equipment ain't freaking calibrated, meaning it's not even gone through a functional test, bump test, or anything. Companies don't like doing this. Now it's a little bit easier because now you got the fancy docking stations and everything to do uh, calibration and everything with it. But often companies don't do that, number one. And number two, they're only uh, calibrated with one type of gas, heptane, hexane, even uh, things like that. And different things are going to react differently with the gas and everything else, different types of gases. So they put in a big safety margin here. So, and then you have carbon monoxide uh, is another one, or uh, H2S. Those are usually come, H2S is from rotting organic matter. CO or carbon monoxide, not dioxide, monoxide is from usually some type of engine exhaust. All of this stuff has to be recorded. So if you're the confined space entry attendant, and this is nowhere near, this program is nowhere near a comprehensive confined space entry class, you have to sit there and you have to record this stuff. You're say, well, no, we don't have to record anything. It's all in the data logger. Okay, now here's the question. How many people are actually out there data logging this stuff and have the ability to read a data logger on the machine? I want to tell you not too many in my experience. This is why you need to go and physically record things on a piece of paper, and then have the backup being in a data logger. The reason being is this. The attendants often turn the equipment off. The attendants often don't look at that equipment. They're relying on data logger, and the equipment goes dead. Battery issues. It may, it may be a loud environment, and you can't hear that alarm going off. All of those things are very, very dangerous situations. So you need to go over there and you actually have to go out and record the data. Calibration, calibrating things before shift and then doing a, a, a functional test after the shift. So this way, you know it's working. And then 
Afterwards, you knew, know it worked. Very important. Everything logged in on a calibration log. If you are, okay, now let's bust the balls. If they have balls, right? It could be a female. Bust the balls of the confined space entry attendant. You have a confined space entry attendant. You want to cause them a problem? Ask them how to do the air monitoring. Ask them if it's calibrated. Ask them where the readings are. All that stuff in there because often that's where companies fail. And if you're the entrant in there, you want to make damn sure that the attendant is doing what they're supposed to be doing. Bottom line is what has to happen. And then now the question is, well, Jim, do you really do that? Yeah, I, I always do it. And by the way, the attendant should know what those readings mean. So let's not reading things and say, oh, we're going to read things. Look at us, blah, 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 blah. No, what do those mean? What does it mean to have an oxygen deficient atmosphere? Because I tell you what, if I'm an auditor, I'm going to ask those questions. If something happens, right, someone dies, no, God forbid, what's the investigator going to ask for? They're going to ask for the air monitoring data and everything else, and they're going to ask, well, do you know what this means of the attendant? I don't think you want to be an attendant with that type of uh, an attendant that has to answer those questions and not know the answers, know the correct answers. So it's very important that you get a responsible person too. The attendant needs to be there. Attendant has to have backbone, preventing people from going into the uh, permit-required confined space and everything else. So if you want a permit-required confined space entry class where we go into everything with it, Give us a call, 845-269-5772 or jim at safetywords.com. We've been doing this, basically, I've been doing this training since about 1993, and I managed hundreds, if not thousands, of permit-required confined spaces at this point in the oil industry and construction industry. And what's the point? We're fighting that safety war. We don't have to be yelling and screaming or anything. We're trying to work together for a safer work environment. We're trying to get along with people. We're just trying to give some type of leadership, being that point person in your organization, in your community, with permit-required confined spaces and all other safety issues. And uh, the bottom line is we're all in this together, folks. Give us a call. Uh, send us a message. Whatever have you. And that's what we have for tonight. And good night, folks. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. Remember to join us tomorrow for Fall Protection Friday.